0: So this morning, we are going to be in our second to last week in the book of Revelation. I am not going to have, uh, we'll be in chapter tw- 21, a little bit of 22. We'll not have all the verses on the screen, So and, and it's a lot of verses. So I encourage you to open up or turn on your Bible so you may follow along and read it for yourself. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, there is hopefully one in the seats in front of you. Uh, you can grab them out uh, and follow along uh, as well. Today, we celebrate the resurrection as we sang about we celebrate that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their savior and as their Lord of their life have a next chapter that will be told of their lives. When they breathe their last breath, they will receive an inheritance like all good fathers leave their children. And that promise, that inheritance is heaven. And that's what I want to focus, on to focus on today. Now, some of you here probably believe in heaven, and maybe some of you don't. If you don't, I would make the argument that whether you realize it or not, the idea of heaven is ingrained in every single one of our souls. It's an understanding that has been here through the beginning of time. It's shaped every civilization in human history. If you study the the aborigines in Australia, they pictured heaven being this distant island. If you study the Mexicans, the Peruvians, and I think it was the Polynesians, they believed that they went to the sun or to the moon after death. Native Americans They believed in the afterlife that they they would get to hunt the spirits of buffaloes. The pyramids of Egypt, they often included maps next to the dead bodies so that they would know how to get to the afterlife. The Romans believed that the righteous would picnic in Elysian fields as their horses would graze nearby. And these are just a few examples. There is not a civilization in history who does not have some concept of heaven, even though they differ from one another. And I believe that reveals to us that heaven is real. C.S. Lewis once said, the fact that we long for something beyond the grave is a strong indication that it actually exists. He gives this great question. He goes, do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Do they have a problem with that? Does the water not feel good enough to them? He said, if they did, would that not strongly suggest that they were destined, not destined to be aquatic creatures, that they were destined for something else? I believe in our souls that we long to step out of the sea of time into the land of eternity. I think it's one of the greatest arguments for there being another life after this one. What we're going to do today is we're going to see what Christianity shows us that life is going to be like. That Jesus' death and resurrection did not just free us from our sins, did not just Fill us with the Holy Spirit, but also gave us the promise of heaven. I'm going to read through Revelation chapter 21 now. And what I want you to do is I want you to let your imagination run wild on this as I read these verses. And there's quite a few of them. As you follow along, allow yourself to picture it. Chapter 21. Then I saw heaven, a new heaven, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and omega, the beginning to the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment, to the one who conquers, will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, with all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death as we talked about last week. Verse nine, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven, uh, who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues. He spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. To the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his his rod, twelve thousand stadia, which is about fourteen hundred miles. Its length and its width and height are all equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, which is about 200 feet, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And it goes on to list a bunch of jewels that I am not going to take the time or effort to try to pronounce. Verse 21 And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates were made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the Lamb of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also, On the other side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I thank you for being here this Easter. I hope you have a good one. I need to take a moment. Now, if you've never read Revelation, everything I read probably feels really confusing and complex. Actually, to be honest, even if you've read Revelation like a hundred times, everything I read just seems really confusing and complex. What we have to remember when studying Revelation is that the Bible is not one book. It is a book of books, and it's made up of many different kinds of literature. There's historical literature, there's legal documents, there's song lyrics, there's poetry, there's wisdom literature, there are letters, and there's also apocalyptic literature like we find in Revelation. Now, the, trip, the trick with this kind of literature is that there's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of symbolism that is used to convey, convey very specific meanings. Now, because of our Western, we take everything literal culture, we can get really caught up in trying to understand every single image. Word for word, syllable for syllable. But when John wrote Revelation, His task in mind was not, I want them to understand every single thing. He goes, I want them to understand and be equipped as they face persecution, as they face false teachers, as they face the temptation of the world, to have this picture of what God is bringing to equip them with the strength and the peace to endure. That's the meaning that matters of Revelation. And that's what we've been going for every week as we've talked about it. And, and so what we're going to do today is we're going to try to describe a few things here. I won't do all of them. This isn't Bible study. It's a sermon. So hopefully the things I don't touch on, you'll be excited to go figure out for yourself. But we're going we're to touch on a few things, and then we're going to really look for what matters, and that's the meaning. The first thing he touches on is John describes a city coming down out of heaven. Revelation 21.2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, why does he say New Jerusalem? Because in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, even since capital of Israel now, right? Jerusalem, and so ever since that time, The idea was when Israel was overtaken by the Babylonians and then we saw Jerusalem get destroyed, they believed in a coming Messiah that would rebuild their capital city. And so it's been this symbol all throughout used scripture for the Jerusalem that God is bringing in heaven because they misunderstood in that time. They thought that Jesus was coming to be this Messiah. He'd be this political leader that when he arrived, he was gonna overthrow the Roman, Roman government, reset up everything and make Israel a great nation again. But as Jesus said, this kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And so they use the symbolism here to say, look, heaven is God's kingdom. This is what he's bringing. In fact, in Galatians 4, Paul says that our home is in Jerusalem above. Now, this is where more of the symbolism comes in. Because if you take all the measurements that I just read in there, This new Jerusalem looks like a giant cube. I think we already got a sneak peek of it there. That's what it looks like. That's what the city looks like. If you take it literally, it's that big. It's kind of weird looking, isn't it? As my wife said, if this is a literal measurement, I hope there's a really good escalator because that's way too many stairs. (laughs) I think these are numbers are symbolic because if you take all the measurements of the Jerusalem, they add up to 144,000. And if you haven't been here, this doesn't make sense. But you see 144,000 earlier in in, in Revelation. And it brings this idea of completeness and wholeness. The idea that all of the world will be redeemed. All those who call upon the name of the Lord. What's also interesting is that the size of the New Jerusalem was the same size as the known Hellenistic world at the time, which was the conquered area from Greece to India. Once again, suggesting the redemption of all nations. It doesn't mean there's not a real city, but it just goes to reminder, when it comes to Revelation, we only know what we know, and we don't know what we don't know, and so we have to hold these, de- these details loosely. Like, we see all these jewels. We see streets made of gold, probably pothole-free. Everybody in New Jersey said amen, right? Trees, right? Rivers. Like, what does this all mean? How, how much of it is literal? How much is it symbolic? We don't know. I'm sure there'll be trees and, 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 and water in heaven, far beyond what we imagine here. Now, it does say no more sea. So sort we're of like, man, like all the water skiers out here, people like to go take their boats on the lake. They're like, man, no water. It's not what it necessarily means. Now, there could be no water in heaven, if there isn't. I doubt we'll miss it. But it could mean that there's just no more sea in terms of the, water that w- the way that we understand water in heaven will be different. It could have nothing to do with water at all. Because if you study scripture, you'll see all throughout the Bible, stretching back into the Old Testament, the sea, and early in Revelation, the sea is often stands for chaos and evil. Several times in Revelation alone. And so its idea that the threat of chaos, the threat of trouble, the threat of sin, it no longer exists. But like I've said many times when we walk through all of these verses, we'll find out when we get there. Amen? Amen. It's almost like Revelation. It's like, it's like this, we're out of season for this, but it, it, it's like this Christmas gift that God's wrapped up with all the shiny paper and the bow and all of these illustrations. And so you're excited for it. You're like, I want to open it. Right? but you can't fully appreciate the gift. You can't unwrap it this morning. You can't unwrap it yet. And you can't go like tear off a corner of it and try to see what it is and retape it with your parents not knowing. Yes, feel convicted. I know some of you have done it. <laughs> I'm staring at my wife right now, not my kids, just so you know. But it's meant to stir up our imaginations. Like when you see Christmas presents on the tree, you don't know what's there, but man, you're excited. Unless it's like from, you know, aunt somebody who you know it's like socks or something. You're excited. This is what all of this is meant to do for us, to get us excited. But what matters is the meaning. And and really, here's the meaning that we should take away from this. And it's in verse 22. And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. In the Old Testament, if you study this, you know the Israelites, they had a tabernacle, then they had a temple. And this is where they came. They came to pray. The priests would offer sacrifices to God. This represented God being with them. John's saying to this Jewish culture, when we get to heaven, there's no need for a temple. God will be with you. He will be with you like he was with Adam in the garden before the fall. Verse three, Revelation 22, verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the point of heaven. Not what this gate will look like or, or this wall will look like, but the fact that one day the skies will open up and God's dwelling will literally come down to be with us. That's what makes heaven heaven. The fact that we'll be with him. See, we're like so materialistic. I, when I grew up, I was like, you're going to have a mansion in heaven, right? Remember that? It comes from the, KG, uh, the King James in, in, in John 14. That, you know, in my house are many mansions. If you read like the ESV that we use here, they say in my house there are many rooms. The word here in the Greek literally means a dwelling. It doesn't mean mansion. Yeah, I <laughs> know. Did I just not get done saying we're so materialistic, right? Now, that doesn't mean we'll have a place to hang out. I don't, who knows what it'll be, right? The fact is, heaven is all about being in God's presence. I mean, think about it. If God is the one who created us, if we are to find our full love and value and worth and purpose and identity in Him, if it's all found in Him, then what greater thing could heaven be than being in his presence, right? I was thinking of my, my, my toddler, my Ella. When I get home, you know, and, and, and you know, unless we're watching, let her know watch her, her favorite TV show, which in that case, she pays literally no mind to me. But outside of that, she will run up to me and she's like, daddy, and she wraps her arms around my leg and goes, hug. Aww. Yeah, I know, cutest thing in the world, right? And, and, and like, she just wants to come hang out with me. When we get to heaven, I guarantee you, all you're going to want to do is hang out with God and be in his presence. That's what heaven's all about. That is what's all about. But if that wasn't cool enough, there's other things that happen. It says, everything will be made new. Revelation twelve five. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. This means you and I will be made new. That's right. We'll be made new. We will be finally who we were meant to be. We will not have the sin of this world. We will not have the sin of other people. We will not have the sin of ourselves altering who we are. Or altering you. the sin that makes us feel worthless, that makes us feel ugly, that makes us feel stupid or unloved or useless we will finally look in the mirror and we will see the masterpiece as we read in Ephesians chapter 2 that God created us to be. We won't see all that stuff that we see now when we look in the mirror. And man, I got to tell you as a pastor, I cannot wait for this day because in my 20 years of working with people as I have them sit across from me in my offices and I see all of these lies that are grabbing a hold of their heart about who they are and I'm like looking at them like and they cannot see how wonderful they are, right? They cannot see what God has created them to be. They're trying to follow God. They put their faith in him and they still cannot see when they look in the mirror, all the things that God says about them. And it breaks my heart. And so man, I can't wait to the day that they get into heaven and they look in the mirror and, and, and all those lies that they have been believing that they talk, taught themselves or other people taught them will just fall away. A lot of you are believing lies about yourself. I believe lies about myself. One day you won't believe them anymore. You won't believe them anymore. Everything will be made new. We'll be made new and everything else will be made new. And I don't even know what that means. Like some people are like, can I like still go do things in heaven I do now? I don't know. But I'm pretty sure if God created everything, then whatever he has waiting is what we want. Will we get to do what we do now? Don't know. Like I hope so, I'd love to play cornhole. You know, know, I'd love, there's things I'd like to do. My wife would like to go flying. That would be cool, right? I don't know, but whatever he does, it will be awesome. Our supreme joy will be found there. And as I always say, except for golf, because it says there's no crying in heaven. (laughs) And probably not the New York Jets, since they always make their fans cry every year either. (laughs) Love you, Mark. Someone, people often ask me, "What what will we be doing? You ever grow up like sitting on a, a cloud thinking you're going to sit on a cloud and play a harp all day? I'm like, that's boring. It doesn't say we're going to do that. I think we get that idea because we read some verses. It, it doesn't really give us any detail of what we'll doing, But it's going to imply that we're going to have jobs. Revelation two five says, No longer... Will there be, or is it 22.3? Anyway, whatever it is, I'm about to read it, it'll be on the screen. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him. The idea is the servants, that means serving to work for. And the idea of having a job makes complete sense because back in the Garden of Eden, when God created Adam, what was the first thing he gave him to do? Gave him a job. He gave him a job. He says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So we're gonna have work to do. I don't know what it is, but it won't be work like we have today that we dread. It'll probably be the most fulfilling work we have ever experienced. You ever get into something and you just, you have so much fun struggling to accomplish it and the creativity that you pour into it and trying to figure it out and like you never want to stop doing it. I think that's what work in heaven's gonna be like. All things made new. Now listen I like I said earlier, the promise of heaven is meant to impact the way we live and view things today. And so one of the ways that we view this heaven is it reminds us that suffering is temporary, right? Suffering is temporary. The curse is gone. We just read that. That means there's no sin, there's no evil, there's no lying, there's no cheating, uh, no more abuse, no more pornography, no more corruption, no more crime. And there's no more suffering. Suffering. There's no sorrow, there's no pain, there's no aches, there's no sickness, there's no cancer, there's no dementia, there's no more accidents, there's no more miscarriages, there's no more struggling to see the ones that you love just wilt physically. I know there's some people in here, you're in your workplaces, and you feel like you're surrounded by the sin of the world, the evil of the world. I know there's other people in this room, you are probably just feeling the weight of sickness and disease either that you're carrying or that someone you love is carrying. How do you get through that? Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The hope of heaven should cause you to look suffering in this world and evil in this world in a new way. Because we often give suffering, we often give evil much more power in the way that we react to it. We let it drag us down. We let it crush our joy. We let it take away from our hope because we're looking at it at an earthly perspective and not a heavenly one. It's almost like God is saying through John, I want you to think about heaven. I want you to ponder it. Uh, I want you to wonder about it. I want you to imagine what it will be like. Because it changes how you see things. Paul, Paul gets this, Romans 8. He says, Romans eight eighteen. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Because they're not even in comparison. I mean, how did Paul face the things he suffered? He imagined what God would be bringing him into and how much greater than it was. What you imagine, what you focus on affects you. I mean, think about what is worry. You are imagining all the bad things that could happen. What is fear? You imagining of what could happen. You're painting pictures in your mind. Paul says, if you want to live a life of fearlessness, if you want to be able to live a life of peace, then you need to imagine heaven and realize how much greater it is. He goes, if you are sinking under your suffering, if you are sinking under hopelessness, it's because you're not imagining, you're not considering, you're not putting it in the light of eternity. He says, imagine the truth of, of eternity until it overwhelms you. Compare it to your present situation. If heaven's true, what am I afraid of? May not enjoy it, but what am I afraid of? If heaven is true, what am I worried about? Until you do that, and, and, and this is why we come to church every Sunday. This is why we talk about reading our Bible. This is why we talk about Bible studies and praying together as if they need to be a daily part of your life, not something we do once in a while. Because as you do that, and the more often you do it, the more that you are seeing everything in comparison to heaven. And when you don't do those things, then you lose sight of heaven because of our sin nature. Have you done that? And a good prayer to pray is say, Lord, help me to put myself in a place where I'm allowing the truths of heaven to impact how I see the things of earth. Even man, even, even when it's about getting old, I am only in my early 40s and I'm already complaining about getting old. And I know for some of you, you were in your 40s like a century ago, right? <laughs> but I'm noticing things. Like sometimes when I get up in the morning, I'm sore. Do you know what I did the night before to make myself sore? I went to bed. Somehow from going vertical to horizontal, I hurt myself. And I will feel it for two days. What is that? (laughs) But I know I I got a new body waiting for me. And some of you are much farther along, and you have some real struggles, real pains, real hurts. And it's easy to let them Allow them to steal your joy. But your your perfect body's coming if your faith is in Jesus Christ. It's coming, it's temporary. Ladies, even for you, I mean you 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 know, I was reading an article, we're the most beautiful when we're young, before the wrinkles set in. And then it can be a struggle after we reach that time to no longer think we're beautiful. The truth is, whether you're 10, 20, 30, 40, 60, 70, or 80. None of you have reached your beautiful self. It's coming in the next life. That's where the beauty's coming. That's where the true beauty is. Man, now you're beautiful now. You may not see it, but you are a princess of the Almighty. You are a daughter of God when your faith is in him as your Lord and Savior and God doesn't make ugly things. We need to know that both men and women. Oh, heaven's gonna be great. It's gonna be beautiful. Telling you right now, you know and I, and I think what else pondering heaven does, and, and Tim Keller wrote about this He's, he was a pastor, and he, he it was mind bowling and when I read about this years ago, he says it when you ponder heaven, it gives you goals in your life that are beyond this life so that you can enjoy this life. This is what it means heaven takes the pressure off if you look at your spouse um, uh, if you look at your children, your work, your job, and you insist those are the things that satisfy you fully, that give you everything that you need. You're putting such pressure on them. You ever driven across a bridge and it says, no more than this, much, this weight goes across this bridge, only an X number of tons? Let me tell you that, you, that a spouse, a child, a career, a job, Whatever the things that you're engaged in that get you excited, they're bridges. And if you put too much weight on them, they will crack and you will fall. You can't put the weight of your soul into those things. You can't put your ultimate hopes into those. We have deep, deep hopes. We have deep, deep needs. And they are far deeper than we even really take the time to understand. And we don't realize the greatness of our need until we have what we love And then we're still hungry for more. And I have sat down with people who have seemingly the perfect life, great career, great six-figure paycheck, great bonuses, right? great kids. And they're like, I feel incomplete. I feel unhappy. I feel depressed. It's because they were expecting that to be everything they need whether they knew it or not, but heaven says, no, oh, no, no, no. What you get in heaven, that's where everything you need finally comes to you. And when you understand that, then it's okay for your job not to be perfect. It's okay for you not to, to mess up your kids a little bit, because as parents, we all do, right? It's okay to have problems. It's okay not to have the perfect body, right? It's, it's okay not to have as much money, right? Because you know earth isn't everything, and the things of earth are faulty, and so that's okay. It doesn't mean you work to make them more holy, and you put time into them, and to honor God in them, but you know they're never meant to suffice. This is a pro- one of the issues that people have that are critical. I want you to ask, yourself: am I a critical person. There's something always wrong with everything. In your, even if you don't say it out loud, you're thinking it. There's something always wrong with your spouse, uh, or that you're wrong that you don't have a spouse, or there's something wrong with your job, or there's wrong with the people around you. There's something wrong with your church, something wrong with your life. There's something wrong with the way that you look. You're always complaining, you're always grumpy, you're never satisfied. This may sound blunt, but this personality, this attitude, it is your fault. It is your fault. And it's my fault when I get like this because what we're doing is we're choosing to put too much pressure on those things. We want too much out of the things of this world. The things of this world were never meant to give you everything that you were meant for. And when you say, man, there is some place better than this. There is a place that God has that's perfect. Perfect. And until then, I'm I'm growing and I'm surviving and and I'm thriving on his spirit and things are going to go wrong. And that's okay because I know what's coming. That's when you're going to finally enjoy your life. Especially when you understand that all of it was a free gift of God, then you're like, man, whatever I get, it's just cake with the icing on the top because I didn't deserve any of it. That's when you'll find Peace. And then that's changes how you work. Jesus says, don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth, but lay them up in heaven. When you focus on the things of this earth, that's what you're going to work for. When you focus on the things of heaven, that's what you're going to work for. Whatever you daydream about, that's what you're going to pursue. That's what you're going to work for. If your house is set on a, a new, if you want a mind is set on a new house or you want an excellent education for your children or they got to have a scholarship or be great at sports, Those things are all good within certain limits. But if that's where your heart's treasure is, if that's where you think happiness is going to come, that's what you're going to pursue. And they're all transient, they're all passing things. It's so important for Christians to maintain an extremely high view of their ultimate destiny, because that's what we'll pursue. Even, look, Americans, we're rich. We are so rich. We have so much money, we complain that we have no money, but compared to the rest of the world, we are loaded. We live like kings and queens. And what we do most of the time, complain that we don't have enough. You know why I know this? I'm a pastor. I hear it all the time. And I always also know this because I'm a human. I complain all the time. I have seven pairs of shoes and I'll still find myself going, man, I really need a color pair of shoes. We Are so focused on this earth and not having enough. But I love this great quote. I don't even have the pastor's name, and he says this He says, A man who has a layover at an airport, he doesn't go into the bathroom, frown at its decor, and start redecorating. (laughs) Why? Because he doesn't live there. His home's somewhere else. He's just passing through. So he's just going to get by with what he needs and need is one of the laziest most overused words in the american culture because we say we need everything no we don't we want we want he says he gets just takes what he needs he'll get away with what he needs so he has more to furnish his permanent home we as christians we are not focused on heaven when we're concerned first and foremost in making our lives more comfortable having what we think needs important instead of saying, okay, God, what are you calling me to do to expand my permanent home? Christian doesn't need to have a bucket list. You don't need to be focused on visiting every place across the globe that we haven't visited. Not that it's wrong, but also not at the expense of what God's calling us to do to work and expand his kingdom. I know, for example, I know retirees, they take their money, they live on a cruise ship all the time. You know, you can do that. Some people are like, ooh, right? They go visit every corner. I know other retirees who have not gone anywhere other than a short vacation, and they pull all their time and money pouring into people, into their communities. Which one do you think is working for their permanent home? And so my prayer is with all of this, and we could go on for, for a long time, is that, For those of you who put faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you'll start to be heavenly minded. That your beauty and your worth be found in who God is creating you to be, not who you see in the mirror. That your energies and your effort, they won't be focused on fixing up the bathroom in the airport, but bringing as many people to this new home as possible. Because as we read in here, not everybody makes it to the new home. We talked about this last week, and it makes sense. We don't like it to make sense, but it does, because every single one of us in here, I told you this last week, none of us would let anyone into our homes who we knew would threaten the health and the safety of those we loved. And God will not let anyone into his heaven who is going to threaten the health and safety of those he loves. If you sit here today with, your, health, with your, your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is your duty, your prime duty, to take the message of heaven to as many people as you can. It's not your responsibility for them to believe it, but it's your responsibility to live for heaven and to take as many people with you just like if we're in an airport and we got to catch a plane and we know other people need to catch that plane, we don't let them sit there, do we, when there's a final call? We go, no, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And the same way that we'll spend our time letting people know we got to go, we got to go. Jesus came, Jesus died. Put your faith in him that we may bring, as Jesus said, heaven, the kingdom of God to earth right now. Amen.